Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 13. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, good morning. Thank you, Larry and worship team, for leading us this morning. Larry mentioned before um, when he was praying, we just wanted to acknowledge uh, the homegoing of um, Elvin Breach. Elvin uh, was, uh, he was here when I got here, and I was told he'd been here a long time before that. Uh, he and his wife Shirley had worshiped with us many, many years. Uh, dear, dear brother in the Lord, and um, yeah, the Lord took him home. His wife Shirley had gone to be with Jesus, I think, like last November, if I remember right. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I, we are, there will not be a service here at the church. Sometimes people wonder about that. Uh, I believe there's a service at the funeral home, like visiting, uh, time to visit with uh, their family on uh, Wednesday, Wednesday evening, I think, 5 to 7. You can find more details about that on the Roland Funeral Home website. And then I wanted to give you an update on one of our global partners, who, and then I'll pray and we'll get into the word. Uh, she's actually with us this morning. Abby, could you stand up? And I, I, I offered Abby the chance to come up and talk, and she said, no, no, you do it. So thank you, <laughs> which is what I do. So, um, so Abby, is, uh, she, she's one of our supportive partners. She grew up in our church for at least last bunch of her, a bunch of years of her childhood. Um, she has been serving for the last two years in Uganda with uh, Youth with a Mission, and she is, she's been here this summer. She's going back next weekend, so pray for her as she goes back. She's actually going back to wrap up the work there. The Lord has led her to, to, to conclude the work in Uganda. So she's going to be there about a month saying goodbye to the team she's been working with there and the people she's been working with and, and, and wrapping up her time with youth with a mission. Uh, she'll be coming back to the States in October. And the goal, the plan is to um, transition to a uh, 
her, her, th- all of this has solidified, and this was one of the big goals. This has solidified her own call to, to missions, to do the Lord's work and, uh, in, in the mission field. And so she will be look, she's looking even now for a, a Bible college where she hopes to do an interco- intercultural studies. Uh, back in my day, they called that missions degrees, but an intercultural studies uh, program. At, uh, there's a, she's looked at some great schools. She was telling me which ones. So, and that might even start as soon as January. So that's what's up with Abby. So she's about to leave, but then she's coming back. You'll see her here back in October. That's the plan. And I would just ask you to be praying for her. If you'd like to hear more, talk to her. She can tell you more about how the Lord's been leading her and, and what, he's, uh, what he's doing there. So, and actually, let's do that right now. I'd like to pray for Abby, and then we'll ask for the Lord's help with this passage. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for our sister Abby. Just uh, appreciate so much her, her love for you, Lord, her passion for you and for your kingdom, and uh, just her, her deep uh, desire, uh, intense desire to see uh, people in other places and here to come to know Jesus as their Savior and grow in him. And so we thank you for the time she's had in Uganda. We pray that this last month there, for now anyway, would be um, a, a rich time, a time of, of closure, a time of tearful but sweet goodbyes and uh, real clarity as she comes away from that ministry uh, back here to the States. We pray you would lead her as she's in the process of transitioning to a different uh, mission agency. We pray that you would uh, lead her as she's looking for a school and just your, your guidance on that one. And we just pray for your provision and safety and guidance over her as she travels there and back again. Just um, be the light to every, every single step on her path, Lord. And uh, we, we just ask that for her. Uh, we ask for ourselves, Lord. <clears throat> we actually ask the same thing in a different context. We ask for your light on the path in front of us. And that, uh, in this next half hour or so, is, is Hebrews chapter 8. And so we pray for your help as we uh, study this passage together. Uh, Lord, I, Hebrews is so rich. Uh, help us see and hear the things you want us to have here. Give us things to build around in, in future study and our own understanding. And apply it to our lives, Lord. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was in seminary, uh, my wife and I lived on the north side, near north side of Chicago. We were on one of the first suburbs, Evanston. If any of you know the Chicago area, we lived in Evanston when uh, I went to school. And I went to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And Trinity is in Deerfield, Deerfield, Illinois. Deerfield is about 20, 25 miles north of Evanston. And so when I would go up for classes, I would commute. I would commute up to school. And it was a commute of, like I say, 20, 25 miles, depending which route you took. Uh, My favorite route was the one that avoided the interstate. And uh, it involved going uh, straight north on a couple of uh, the secondary roads there. And then when I got Uh, got to Half Day Road, I would turn left, and I'd go west on Half Day Road for three, four, five miles, something like that. And uh, and so I liked that route because it was a nice straight shot, and and my school, Trinity, was was right there on Half Day Road. So even though it was Chicago driving, it was just kind of there and then there, and I was there. Now, I'm I'm dating myself a little bit here, but I, I went to seminary in the late 1990s. So I was there in the 1990s, And this was at the height of Michael Jordan's career with the Bulls. This was when Michael Jordan was playing with the Chicago Bulls. In fact, the years I was in seminary, I don't take any credit for this part, but in the years I was in seminary, uh, the Bulls won those three championships, or the the second three of their championships, 96, 97, 98. Uh, That was when when we were there. And and so it was a fun time, fun time to live in Chicago with the Bulls. And I got to tell you, I, I did have a little bit of a personal connection 
A little bit of a personal connection to Michael Jordan. See, when I would drive to school on that route of mine, due north and then head west on Half Day Road, every time I took that route, I would drive right by Michael Jordan's house. I drove right by his place. Now, I don't think he still owns this property. I remember reading in the news years later, he sold it after he retired. Uh, but at the time, since he was there in Chicago, and you know, they have all those games in Chicago, he had bought a house up in Highland Park, and it was right there on Half Day Road. I could see it. He, he bought this house. Well, I, at least I assumed there was a house. I, I couldn't actually see the house. Um, <clears throat> what I could see uh, was the gate, right? And so I would drive by on Half Day Road, and, and, and there was this big gate, and it had a big 23 on it. Great big number 23, kind of ornate. And, uh, and, and it was situated in, so the big 23, and that was his number when he played for the Bulls. And there was the 23 in the gate, and the gate was in the, in the thick wall. And there was a bunch of trees behind the, the, the wall, at least at that time there was. And, and so I actually couldn't see the house, but uh, I'm sure it was back there somewhere. I, I thought of Jordan's house this week. I thought of Michael Jordan's house as I was studying Hebrews chapter 8. Because it, it seems to me that my tenuous connection to Michael Jordan helps us understand the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Kind of helps us understand the difference. And we talked some, we got into this last week, it's kind of how Hebrews works. One chapter introduces an idea and then the next chapter expands on it. And so we talked about this new covenant a little bit last week. Uh, and, we, and we talked about how under the old covenant, uh, the Israelites were separated. They were cut off from God. And, and yes, the old covenant removed some of the barriers. It did give up the people a way to deal with their sin. Uh, but in the end, even under the old covenant, there was still this fundamental separation, right? Remember that, that holy of holies, only the priest could go in once a year. There was this fundamental separation between man and God uh, under, uh, under the old covenant. And that's why one of the verses we looked at last week, chapter 7, verse 19, is, is such good news. Uh, that verse says that through Jesus, we now have a better hope through which we draw near to God. We're not cut off from him anymore. We have a better hope. And we saw last week that that better hope, and the author says this, the better hope comes from a better covenant. We have this better covenant. And that's now what he's going to expand on in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is all about the better covenant. And a lot of times the Bible is going to call it the new covenant. We have a new covenant, a better covenant in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, I, uh, as we came back to Hebrews after a little bit of a break, I, I made the case that the next four chapters, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, are all tied together by a single theme, and it's the theme of the worthiness of Jesus. The author is helping us understand that Jesus is worthy, and in the context of persevering when there's persecution and struggle, which we know those readers were, in that context, really, Jesus is worth any sacrifice. We talked about that last week. Yeah, life gets hard sometimes, but Jesus is worth it. He's so wonderful. He's so incredible that he's worth any sacrifice. And these four chapters are exploring that from different angles. Last week we explored his worthiness through by looking at his better priesthood and that's the main emphasis of chapter 7 Jesus has this better priesthood now we look at the better covenant because of the better priesthood and that's where we'll start in just a moment because of the better priesthood he inaugurates a better covenant and we continue each week we'll kind of come at this idea of him being worth any sacrifice from a different from a different angle but this morning what i want to talk about is that the, he's worth any sacrifice because we can know God personally through him. Jesus is worth any sacrifice because we can know God personally through him. And that's where this new covenant comes in. This is why the new covenant is better. We're not cut off anymore. Now we can know God personally. 
personally through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at this text, but before I jump into the text, I, I actually want to ask a question about this statement, <laughs> my, my main idea this morning. I want to ask a question about it, and, and the question I want us to think about for a minute is, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we start talking about knowing God personally? Because we, we talk that way a lot, you know, especially Christians like us will talk a lot about knowing God personally, having a personal relationship with God. What do we actually mean when we, when we say that? And maybe you've wondered that yourself. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be facetious, but are, are, we, are, we, are we saying, you know, well, we, we get to have coffee with Jesus down at the coffee shop, you know? And, you know, you go into, you know, one of the local shops and it's, you walk up to the counter. And it's like, all right, I'll have the Americano today. And no, I don't want a muffin. How about you, Jesus? What do you want? You want, you want the latte today? And that's goat milk, right? You like goat milk in your latte? I mean, and you come back and you sit at the table. I mean, we talk sometimes as, as if that's what we're saying, but is that what we mean? And I am not, I actually do think there's a big place in the Christian life for being mindful of the presence of God with us. You know, there's a wonderful little book written several centuries ago called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. He was a, a Catholic monk. And, uh, and so there's, a, there's, I won't go into that book, but there's very much a place for paying attention to the fact that God is with us. But, but is that all we mean? Is that all we mean? Or, or is there something more the theologically rigorous? Is, is there something more theologically precise that we're saying when we say that we get to know God personally through Jesus Christ? And I would submit to you that there is. And, and this passage helps us with that. It helps us understand what, we, what we're talking about when we say that we can know God personally through Jesus. And so um, we're going to do that. We're going to come at this question, uh, what do we mean when we say this, by looking at Hebrews chapter 8. And this isn't an exhaustive treatment on the subject, what does it mean to know God personally? There's lots of other stuff in the Bible about that. But in this chapter, we see five benefits. I think this chapter is a great place to talk about this issue, because what this chapter does is it shows us five benefits of the new covenant. And because the new covenant makes it possible for us to know God personally now, what we can talk about then are five benefits of knowing God personally. And so when we say, what does it mean to know God personally? Well, we mean at least these five things. So let's look at these. Let's talk about five benefits of knowing God personally through Jesus Christ. So benefit number one is that we have an accurate view. We, we actually, so when we say, you know, God personally, we have an accurate view of God through Jesus, in Jesus. We have an accurate view, and I'll just simplify it. We have an accurate view of Jesus. And this is what is given to us in verses 1 through 6. And I'll spend more time with my first point than the other ones because it's half the passage. Uh, but, but I think these first six verses all hang together here. Um, they, they help us understand this. So uh, if you have your Bible or an app or whatever, go ahead and have verses 1 through 6 in front of you there. And we're going to look at 1 through 6, but I actually want to jump to 6. I want to, go, I want to start with verse 6, because verse 6 is, is the key verse in this chapter, I think. And I say that partly because that's where our language comes from. It's the, this is where we read that this is the better covenant, right? Jesus has a better ministry. The better ministry is based on better promises, and so it's therefore a better covenant. And all of the language the author's using here, it comes from, uh, it comes from chapter 7 and from chapter 7's quotation of the stuff we looked at last week, Psalm 110. So Psalm 110, verse 4, uh, it's quoted in Hebrews 7, 21. Uh, here's the better promise he's talking about in verse 6. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a, you're a priest forever. So God the Father talking to God the Son, 
the, the Lord Yahweh talking to the Messiah, you are a priest forever. And so this is why the author will tell us in verse 6 that Jesus has a better promise and therefore his priesthood has a, is a better priesthood because it comes from the better promise. And so uh, that's verse 6. The five verses before that all build to that that idea that he has the better priesthood and therefore initiates the better covenant, they build to that by showing us why he's qualified. And some of this, actually a lot of the first five verses here are a summary of many of things that have been said earlier in the book. So we we don't spend a ton of time on it, but but let me just hit the highlights here. Uh, But what it comes down to is that Jesus is qualified. He's he's qualified. Uh, And and so let's talk about how he's qualified, right? That's the idea here. And it's so important, this is important to see how he's qualified, before I tell you there's two ways he's qualified, uh, is because there's actually a lot of confusion about Jesus. If you think about it, there's a lot of confusion about Jesus. You know, we talk about having an accurate view of him. Um, maybe some of you have run into this, maybe you haven't, but there are many today who would say, even today, would say that Jesus is just a myth. You know, you, you can certainly find people who will say, it actually becomes less as, as there's better historical evidence, there are fewer that say this, but there are still those who say, ah, there was no such thing as Jesus, there's, he was just a myth. Uh, others want to claim uh, that he was just, uh, was merely a historical figure, right? He was a moral teacher, or he was a revolutionary, you know, some will, will argue that, you know, peasant revolutionary Jesus. Uh, others will say that, oh yeah, Jesus is a God, right? Jesus is a God, and, so are lots of other beings out there, right? There's, there's, that's one's actually, that one is kind of growing in popularity in our own day as people become more uh, small s spiritual. Yeah, there's, Jesus was definitely a divine figure, and so are there lots of other ones out there too. And so you have lots of confusion, lots of confusion in our world about who Jesus is. And there's one of the things Hebrews does, and, and this, including this passage right here, one of the things that helps us see is, is this is who he is. This is who he is. And so when you, when you know God personally, you, you, you know him as he really is, not as the human imagination concocts him, okay? And so who is he? He's the great high priest, the initiator of the, of the new and better covenant. And, and there's two things he talks about in here that make him so well qualified. So um, just looking at the text, uh, the first is that he is, well, it's, so he's accurate. The first is that it's well, he is well qualified, He's well-qualified. I'm going to put the other one up here too so I don't confuse myself. He's also well-positioned. So the reason, what we're knowing about Jesus is that he's well-qualified and he's well-positioned. You see the well-qualified part mostly in verse 1. Now the point of what we're saying, the author says, is this. We have such a high priest, reaching back to chapter 7. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he points back to that Melchizedek priesthood we talked about last week, and he says, our high priest is like that Melchizedek. He's, he's well qualified. He's not like the Le- Levitical priesthood, which fell, fell short. He's, his is in the Melchizedek priesthood. And so he's qualified because of that, and then he's also qualified because of his character. So he's got the right priesthood, and he's got the right character. And those, uh, this, this verse says he's seated at the right hand of the majesty and high. That reaches back to that idea of being exalted, chapter 7, verse 26. And you'll remember some of the other things we looked at as well at the end of the chapter there. Uh, he is um, he's innocent, he's holy, uh, he's unstained by sin, he's separated from sinners. And so Jesus is well qualified 
to, to, to initiate this new covenant and to save us. He's well qualified because of his priesthood and because of his character. And so you have that part in verse 1. And then he's also well positioned. And this is the part, this is maybe the newer part as the book progresses in its argument. And so it gets verses 2 through 5. And so he's going to, he says, let me tell you about the position Jesus has. He is a minister, verse 2, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he's talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So we've established that Jesus has, uh, is a priest. We've already got that set in the book. Uh, what does a priest do? Well, a priest ministers. Every priest has a ministry. It's inherent to the office of a priest. They serve, they minister. The word is actually the same in, in Greek. Um, and, and you can walk through it. Melchizedek had a ministry, and he told us about it back in chapter 7. Melchizedek ministered to Abraham, and he was the high priest and the king in this place called Salem. Uh, the, the Levites had a ministry. That, those priests had a ministry. Their job was to take care of and to administer the sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle under the old covenant sacrificial system. And so they had a ministry. That was their ministry. Jesus is a priest. And so he, he just says, it's logical. Every priest has to have a ministry, he says. Right? And so Jesus has a ministry. But here's the, here's the, here's the curveball. Uh, his ministry isn't on earth. And he says that in verse 4. Uh, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Or see, Jesus wouldn't qualify to be a priest on earth. And do you remember, we, we talked about this just a little bit. Um, he, he, Jesus was actually not qualified to be a priest under the, under the Jewish system. He was not qualified to be a priest because you had to be a Levite. He had to be from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he was actually not qualified for an earthly priesthood. But it didn't matter, the author tells us, what Jesus has is a heavenly priesthood. And that's all these verses. And we're actually going to dig, dig into those things a little more in chapter 9, and I think some of it in chapter 10. When it talks about him offering the better sacrifice, that's like a little bit of a teaser. He's not going to tell us what the better sacrifice is. You and I know what it is. It's the cross. It's himself. But he's not going to tell us that for a little while. That's going to come later. Right now, he's just talking about this priesthood. And so Jesus has his priesthood, is, is well-positioned because it serves in the place where everything is actually based on, right? And so, and this is this whole idea of shadows, right? And so he talks here about shadows. He will some more. Uh, there, the, the, the things that Abraham, the, the things that were given to Moses to build the tabernacle according to, they were all imitations of a heavenly reality, we're told, right? And so the real thing is in heaven. The imitations, the copies were here on earth. The earthly priests served at the copies, but Jesus is the heavenly priest who served at the real thing. He, he fulfills and serves all of these realities. And so his priesthood, it's another way his priesthood is better. He's qualified by virtue of his character and the priesthood that he occupied. He's, and he's also qualified because of his position. He's well positioned to take care of his people. So you've got all of those things happening there. Here's why that stuff matters. All right? Here's why it matters. It matters because this is how he can do it. This is how he brings us into a personal relationship with God. And that's what we come, we come back to here. When we, we talk about knowing God personally, what we're talking about is knowing Jesus as he really is. And this is really an important issue in this day. 
This is an important issue because I, I go back to that, that, that idea that, you know, Jesus is very popular. People love to say, oh, I like Jesus, but I just don't like Christians, or I don't like the church, right? It's a little bit saying, like, you like me, but you don't like my wife, by the way. That would, I would, won't really like that a whole lot. The church is Christ's bride, but you'll hear people say that kind of thing. Uh, but, but Jesus is very popular, right? Jesus is very popular. People like Jesus, but I don't know that they like the Jesus that you actually meet in the scriptures, and that's why this is so important, because what, what we meet here is the Jesus as he really is. Historical Jesus. I talked about, you know, kind of Jesus is revolutionary or Jesus is good teacher. Historical Jesus isn't going to save anybody, because merely historical figures can't save anybody. Nobody, Aristotle didn't save anybody. Smart guy, but he didn't save anybody. You could do that with any historical figure. Historical Jesus can't save. Mythical Jesus sure can't save. <laughs> moral teacher Jesus can't save. The history's filled with moral teachers. The only Jesus that can save us from our sins is the one we meet in Hebrews. It's the one who serves as the great high priest of the better covenant. And so we start there. We, we start there. What does it mean to know God personally? It means knowing Jesus as he's presented to us in the scriptures. That, that's what, what we're talking about. When somebody says to you, what do you mean you know God personally? Well, I, I know Jesus. I know the Jesus I meet in the Gospels and in the New Testament. So that's one. Benefit number two is we also have an accurate view of ourselves. And these two go hand in hand. So not, it's not only that we know Jesus as he really is, but when we know God personally, we also know ourselves as we really are. And we see this in verses 7, 8, and 9. Uh, let me read those verses. So picking up. So we, we kind of treated with six before, and we jumped to seven. Uh, for if that first covenant, the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I'm going to stop there in the middle of that quote. So the reason, follow the logic here. So, so we, had, uh, we had a first covenant, and now he's going to tell us why. So he says the reason God provided a second covenant, this new covenant that we were just told about, uh, the reason is that the first covenant had a problem. And that's what verse 7 says. It uses the word fault. It says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second. And the logic there works such that the first covenant wasn't faultless. There was a fault. There was a fault with the first covenant. Verse 8 tells us what the fault was. Verse 8 tell, comes right out and tells us what the problem with the old covenant was. The problem with the old covenant was us. That was the problem with the first covenant. The human beings were the problem with the first covenant. And I want, to, I want to stress that today. The problem was not the covenant, right? The, 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 the Mosaic covenant's beautiful. It, it, it's God's wisdom. It's good. Paul will emphasize that in Galatians. Galatians, the problem wasn't the covenant. The problem was the people with whom God made the covenant. It was the people who, who couldn't and wouldn't keep the covenant. And that's actually, that's, I'm not just making stuff up here. It's, it's, uh, I don't. Uh, he finds fault, verse 8, with them. It throws you a little bit if you're reading carefully because you fully expect. He's just told me that the covenant had been faultless. He, what he ought to say is it. But he doesn't say it because he's not talking about the covenant. He's talking about the people in the covenant. He finds fault with them. And so the problem is us. 
The problem, you know, talk about having an accurate view of ourselves. Uh, the problem was us. And that introduces this lengthy quotation from Jeremiah 31, which is going to be God's answer to the covenant, right? Is, is, or good, to, to the problem. The problem, the problem is us. And so God says, here, I'm, I'm, I've, got to, I've got to fix. Let me, let me fix it. And so what we have in uh, verses 8 through 12 is a, a lengthy quotation from Jeremiah. You could go look it up. It's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And those words, God spoke those words through Jeremiah the prophet 600 years before Jesus was born. And so that tells us that God was planning a new covenant, right? So long before Jesus, before the incarnation actually happened, this was God's plan. This is where it was headed. And so the new covenant doesn't come out of the blue, right? God says the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant. Verse 9, looking at the text, verse 9 then explains uh, that the new covenant's not like the old one. Uh, And so in what way is it not like the old one? Well, the problem with the old one is that the people didn't continue in it. That's what verse 9 is telling us. It's telling us how, it's the fault. It's the fault that was with the Israelites. And so I brought them out of Egypt. I did all this wonderful stuff for them, but they didn't continue in my covenant. And so what is the effect of that, that disobedience? It breaks it. The covenant was broken, not by God, but by them, by, by the people, by us, right? And so, and so you get that statement, which is kind of a striking one. He says, I showed no concern for them. That doesn't mean God stopped loving them. Now, those of you who were, went to any of the Sunday school classes this, this summer with the minor prophets, you know God never stopped loving them, even at the height of their disobedience. He never stopped loving them. But what that means when he says, I showed no concern for them, is, is they'd broken the covenant, so the covenant was void, right? I, 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 you don't have to keep the covenant when the covenant is broken. And so the covenant he, was, was broken. He still loved them, though, which is why he provides the new covenants, because he loves them. And so uh, he, he, he's going to keep it himself, right? I mean, this is the, the beauty of the new covenant, and I'm getting ahead of myself in the book because these things aren't in, ver- in chapter 8. But if, if the covenant depends on obedience and the people who were part of it wouldn't obey, well, then Jesus says, I'll obey for them. And that's why the work of Christ on the cross. We'll get to that sacrifice that he offered when we get later in the book. And, and so the Jewish people, they, they broke that. What was the problem with the first covenant? It was broken. It was broken because the people couldn't keep it. They wouldn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. And then the, thing, the, 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 uh, the connection we have to make here is we have to realize that this isn't just the Jewish people. This, they stand in for all of us. They stand in for all of us. They had all these blessings, and even they couldn't do it. We are in the same sinking boat, right? All of humanity, every human being. And that's the accurate view of ourselves that is so essential to to knowing God personally. If we come to this with an attitude that, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. I just need a little help from Jesus. If that's your, your, your approach to your, to your faith, you're not going to get very far, quite honestly, because that, that is not what the scriptures teach about ourselves. We are covenant breakers. We are sinners. We are rebels. We are revolutionaries and not in a good way. We, we are rebels against our creator. And we've got to own that in order to know God personally. And so that's a big part of this here, that all of that sets us up. So, and it's actually a benefit, right? If you had an awful disease, you don't want somebody to lie to you and tell you you're not sick. You want to know that you have the awful disease so that you can get the treatment. So it's, it's actually good news to know the bad news sometimes. And that's, a case, that's the case with number two. All right, now let's look at number three. Benefit number three, 
Uh, each one of these gets a little shorter because we're dealing with fewer verses as they all build here. But the third benefit is that we also have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So because we have a right understanding of Jesus, a biblical understanding of Jesus, a biblical view of ourselves, now what's God going to do in us through that? Well, one of the things he's going to do is that God himself is going to illuminate our hearts. He's going to show us the truth himself. And that's what God emphasizes. He says, let me tell you how this new covenant is better. Uh, Pick up in verse 10. I'll read 10 and 11 for now. It says, for this is the covenant. Here's what the new one's going to be like that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, and the least of, from the least of them to the greatest. When we, God, when we know God personally, his truth is no longer something foreign that's imposed on us from the outside. Now it's something personal that becomes an integral part of our very being. He, he puts it inside of us. And I think that's what this means when it says uh, that his, his law is written on our minds, his, his, um, his, his law is written on our hearts. Um, when you think of that picture, there's an intentional permanence there that we sometimes miss in our contemporary culture. Um, writing, writing something on our hearts. Uh, when we write things, a lot of the things we write are temporary these days, right? I mean, have you written any emails lately or written any texts, right? We, we, we write things and we, they're, they're, they're digital, they're on screens, uh, they go off, we don't save them, we, you know, it, it's very easy to delete them, you just click a little imaginary button and they're gone. Writing feels very impermanent to us. Even a lot of the things we put on paper, right? Maybe we'll still make a shopping list on a piece of paper or you'll get a receipt from a, from a store and you've got this little piece of paper uh, maybe you save it, maybe you throw it away, right? Writing is very impermanent in a, a paper and digital-based culture like ours. But the, the picture in the scriptures is actually a, a permanent one. See, in the ancient world, writing was, was less common, but more permanent. Less common, but more permanent. Because when somebody wanted to write something, well, I mean, what would you write on? Well, you'd, you didn't just go buy a ream of paper for $8. I mean, you, you had to, usually it was parchment, it might be a scroll. You would write on a scroll. Uh, scrolls were very expensive. Those things were very expensive. A lot of the kind of the basic scroll would be made from sheep, from vellum. Um, and so we're talking an expensive material. They would treasure these things. And so you would be very careful and intentional about the things that you would write. Uh, sometimes, you go even a little further back, they would carve words into clay or they'd carve words into stone for things that they wanted to write down. Uh, like before the invention of paper. Uh, This is why archaeologists, they'll still find shopping lists that are thousands of years old. I've seen pictures of these things, you know, and and, uh, they'll be on little pieces of clay or sometimes carved into pieces of stone. I was looking at a picture of something online that was dated to 1700 BC, and it was a complaint letter uh, some, somebody had bought something from somebody else and it wasn't what he wanted. And so he actually scribbled off on this piece of clay uh, a complaint letter and must have had somebody deliver it. 3,700 years old. Written any complaint letters lately? <laughs> Nobody's going to be reading them 4,000 years from now, right? But, but, but so there's a permanence. My point is there's a permanence. There's a permanence to writing. And so when God says, I'm going to write my laws on their hearts, He's saying, I'm doing something big here. I'm doing something that's, that's, that's going to change them. I'm doing something that's going to last the rest of their lives. 
And it's, and it's on the inside. It's in our minds. It's on our hearts, right? That's this idea. And so when does that happen? It happens when we're born again, right? When, when we are regenerated, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to live within us, brings us to life spiritually, and he begins that process of writing his own values, his own priorities onto our hearts. This is where the, the want to comes from. This is where the want to comes from. Uh, this is why we want to serve him. And we want to live pure lives. And we want to please the Lord with the way we, we do things. Not to say we always succeed. We, we don't. We still wrestle with our flesh. But the reason we want to is that he has written his law and his unchanging moral standards uh, onto our hearts. And so we have that illumination of the Holy Spirit. And then another part of this is, is that verse 11, which kind of always catches my attention especially, uh, this idea that we don't need anybody to teach one another anymore, right? You'll no longer teach each other or, or you encourage each other even to say, know the Lord, uh, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And I think the, the right way to understand that verse is that it's not saying that we don't need people to teach us. We do. We all need people to teach us. I, need, I don't know anything I haven't learned from somebody else. We all need to learn from, from one another. And so there's that idea, actually we'll get to it in chapter 10, I think it is, about, about community, the importance of community and, and helping one another. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Of course we still need one another. So verse 11 doesn't mean we don't need one another. What it means is that each one of us now, because the Holy Spirit lives within us, each one of us has the capacity to understand the Bible. You're doing it right now, right? You're doing it right now. You're listening, you're weighing the things I say, you're lining them up against other sermons you've heard on this, other things you've learned. You're like, hopefully you're throwing out the bad stuff if there's any kind of confusion here. You know. You're doing it right now. You're doing what verse 11 is talking about right now. And that's, that's what it means. Each one of us, if you're a believer, has the Holy Spirit to illumine us, to under, help us understand to know God in a personal way, to understand his word. That's benefit three. Benefit four is forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sins. That's the one you see in verse 12 and also somewhat verse 13. Um, verse 12 is the last part of the quote. Uh, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then verse 13 explains the permanence of this forgiveness. The permanence of it comes from the obsolescence of the old covenant. And so in speaking of a new covenant, God makes the, the first one, the old one, obsolete. What's obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. A lot of scholars actually see there a, a hint at the destruction of the temple that's coming. But, but mostly the, the point is that we don't need the old covenant anymore. Um, we've talked about this some already in Hebrews. The sacrifices under the old covenant, they had to be repeated over and over and over again. They had to be repeated. And that was true for the nation, the Day of Atonement, every year they had to do it. It was also true for individuals. Every time an individual sinned, he or she was supposed to offer sacrifices for the sins that, that they had committed. They were supposed to go, I, we had, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence they actually did it, but they were supposed to, maybe they collected them up and went once a week or something, but they were, they were supposed to go and make sacrifices for all of the sins that they committed. That repetition, though, is, is rendered obsolete, he says. And that's the word uh, the, the author uses. Uh, when something is obsolete, it served its time when it was its time. It served its purpose in its time, but something better has now replaced it. That's the idea with obsolete. Uh, again, I must have felt old when I wrote this sermon. When, when I went to college, one of the things they told me to buy was a typewriter. 
I got a list from the school. They said, make sure you show up with a typewriter because you're going to have to write a lot of papers. So I went and bought a typewriter. I guarantee none of you went and bought typewriters for your, for your college freshmen, right? We, why? Why? Because the computer does it way better. It does whatever a typewriter can do way, way better. Uh, it's a little bit of a picture. It's not a perfect picture, but it's a pretty good picture of, of, of that obsolescence of the old covenant. We just don't need it. And so that repetition. And, and so for forgiveness, what does that mean? It means our sins are forgiven because of the new sacrifice, the better sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's one we'll definitely talk about more in the next two chapters. So that's benefit four. Uh, finally, benefit number five, we have a favored status with God. And I wanted to end with this one. I, I'm taking it out of order in the passage because I just think it's an encouraging place to land. It's in the middle of verse 10, this favored status. Uh, it's actually the second half of verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people, God says. So he's put his law in our, our hearts. He's, he's written his laws in our minds. He's written them on our hearts. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God makes us his own people. He brings us in. He makes us his own people. That's what the new covenant does. It's favored status. This goes back to this idea of access we've been talking about. Chapter 7, verse 19, we can draw near to God. There's a creator, and we can know him personally. Right? That's one of the, that is one of the things we're talking about. We t- you can go have coffee with Jesus. Right? I mean, it's not the same as having it with the friend who's sitting next to you, but we can because he has made us one of his own people. And what's more, this access, it says, is available to everybody, right? It's not just for those of Jewish descent anymore, like it was under the Old Covenant. And there was a provision for foreigners to come in under the Old Covenant, but basically they had to become Jewish. That's how a foreigner became, came under the Old Covenant. They would become Jewish. But it's not like that anymore, not under the new one. Now it's for everybody. Every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, all people are invited to draw near under this new and better covenant. Say, how do we do that? It's the gospel. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in him, God God pulls us in. He goes like this, and he makes us one one of his own. You are my people, he says. I started out by uh, telling you about my, my daily commute years ago with Michael, uh, past Michael Jordan, uh, past his house. Um, I never did this, of course, but imagine if I had pulled into the driveway one day. Imagine if I'd uh, pulled run right up to that big gate with the number 23 in the middle of it, and I, I don't know if there was an intercom, but there probably was. And so I, I, I buzzed the intercom, and, and a voice came on, some guard or some voiceless somebody says, who is it? Who's there at the gate? And I say, it's me. It's Don McLean, one of the students over at Ted's. You know me. Yeah, I, I drive by here. I'm sure you've seen me. I drive by four or five times a week. And hey, listen, I was, I was watching a Bulls game the other night. And you know, I'm not a huge, huge fan, but, but Michael did, he really had a great game. And, and I was just thinking, I was driving by here. I thought, you know, I'm going to go in and say hello. I just wanted to tell him what a great game he had the other day. And, and well, gosh, you know, it's actually, it's lunchtime. I wonder if, you know, if he was going to eat, maybe I could join him and, and we could have a little lunch together. He could tell me some stories. Is Dennis, is Dennis Rodman really as crazy as they say, as he looks? You know, what, really, I mean, it would be a wonderful time. So I, I, it's, it's me, Don, let me in. Is he going to let me in? <laughs> no way. Not a chance. They're probably going to call the police what they're going to do. Why? because I'm not one of Jordan's people. I'm not one of his people. And so I don't have any right 
to come into his house like that. But when it comes to God, that's exactly what I have. When it comes to the creator of the universe, that's exactly what I can do. And not just me, but you, all of us, every believer can do just that. We can stride right up to the gate and throw it open. I'll go back to chapter 4, Hebrews 4, 16. We've been building to this. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of the new and better covenant. It's not because of anything we did for ourselves. It's because of what Jesus did for us. 